Hello lovelies. Before we get started, I wanted to thank each and every one of you for a really successful pre-Pesach season. All aspects of what I do, including this show, would not be possible without your support. And words can't really express uh, how much I appreciate it. Maybe it's just because I'm really tired pre-Pesach, but I, I hope that you feel the love coming through your headphones. So here's the schedule for the next two weeks. Tuesday, April 3rd, that's the day after this episode is released, is my last shipping day before Pesach. Any order placed before 3 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday will ship out before I close for Pesach. If you live in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, it usually takes one day to get to you. So you should have your pieces on time, but I do recommend ordering by Monday at 3 p.m. to be safe. Impact Fashion will be closed and not shipping from Wednesday, April 5th through Friday, April 14th. You are welcome to place an order online during that time. It'll ship when we reopen on Monday, April 17th. Uh, if you're more of a last minute shopper and you do live in the tri-state area or close enough to East Rutherford, New Jersey, then I highly recommend that you check out the address in American Dream Mall. You're going to park at a C level three and then make a left when you walk in. It's right there. My section in the store has moved. I'm much closer to the front now. So when you come in, you're going to want to hang an immediate right and you'll see me across from Ivy. When we reopen, by the way, after Pesach, there are lots of new and exciting things in the pipeline. I'm going to start working on a new design, the pre-order for the drawstring dress, which the entire work in progress for that is uh, currently saved in an Instagram highlight. All of that is going to be shortly after Pesach. I just got the sample back for the drawstring dress and it is gorgeous. I'm so excited for you to get your hands on it. Remember, you can find my designs on impactfashionnyc.com. Follow me on Instagram at impact.fashion.myc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. Don't forget that in order to see the status, I need to have your contact saved. So WhatsApp me at 516-953-9391 and I'll add you. There will be no new episode of Be Impactful next week. I'm taking the time off for Pesach. But in the meantime, there is quite an extensive back catalog of episodes. So feel free to catch up on any of the ones that you missed. Look if there's a person that interests you, a topic that interests you, and enjoy it, you know, while you're prepping for the holiday. If there's a topic or that you'd like to hear about or a person who you'd like to hear from, feel free to let me know. I'm always looking for suggestions. My email is rivky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. A quick note about this particular episode, there is some language at about the 20-minute mark, so heads up if you're listening with kids around. Thanks so much for being here, and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I sit down with an artist and author to discuss her work. She shares how 9-11 completely changed the direction of her life and led her to becoming an artist, why believing in your customer is something most entrepreneurs forget to do, and why it's not always easier to sell cheaper items. Miriam Shulman is a wonderfully practical free spirit, and that really appeals to me. I'm always up for an opportunity to discuss the nitty-gritty of creative businesses, which is exactly what Miriam covers in her book, Artpreneur. So I'm very glad that I got a chance to have this conversation with her. I've always been a nerd. I'm still a nerd. I was a nerd. I'm still that way. I was always 
flaky. I'm still flaky. I'm always spaced out. I, I try to stay in orbit of what's happening. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I really, you know, it's funny how when you look back on your childhood, some for some people, at least I know for me, it's true. I really haven't changed that much. It's like, oh, same, same old, same old. I was just recording with someone before this and they had the exact same answer where it was like, I'm really the same as I am now. I think there's something lovely about that, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I mean, life has taken a lot of twists and turns, but the core soul, thank God, is the same, you know, it stays the same. And I think a lot of it, and this is some of the work that I do with my artists, I think this is some of the work that you do as well, is really then learning to appreciate and love all those parts of yourself that you that you always have and not rejecting those parts of yourself. Right, yeah, I I, I definitely relate to that on like a, a soul level. Uh, talk to me about becoming an artist. What made you want to do that? How did that happen for you? Okay. So in the fourth grade, I was the new kid in school. I did not dress like the other girls. I did not look like the other girls. I was like, I think the only Jewish girl in the class. And, you know, it was in Atlanta, Georgia. In the D- in, and it, back then it was not the metropolitan that it is now. And I, I think my teacher actually felt sorry for me. And she said I was going to be the class artist, but I took that role very seriously. So my only job was gluing uh, toothpicks onto a pumpkin. But once she like wo- waved her magic wand and said I'm a class artist, I chose to believe her and I took on that identity. However, um, as I was growing up, the message was that you can't make a living this way. And my mother's message to me was, well, you can be a doctor or you can marry a doctor or you're a disappointment to me. So <laughs> um, I did take the practical route and my father had passed away when I was five years old. So I didn't really have the luxury of not, or I didn't believe I did of not doing, you know, making sure that that was taken care of. So I did not become a professional artist. And it wasn't until after 9-11 happened because that's how old I am. I'm 54. After 9-11 happened 20 years ago, I decided I was not going to return to the corporate world. And I made a decision to do something different with my life. So I am going to reveal my age for a moment. I was six when 9-11 happened. And it's actually the, like, as a day, it's particularly fascinating to me, um, you know, as someone who has lived in New York City her entire life. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you know, what you were working as and and what that day was like and, and, and what happened? Yeah. So I'm old enough that I was at the World Trade Center in 93 when the first, the first terrorist attack happened, they bombed the World Trade Center. A lot of people that's been so overshadowed by 9-11, people don't even remember that happened, but I was working at the World Trade Center, at Seven World Trade Center when it happened. They did not tell us it was a terrorist attack. We didn't have self really cell phones then. And my friend and I, we went, we, the, the elevators weren't working because of the bombing, but we walked up 37 flights of stairs to return to our desks. And when we returned to our desk and could look out the window, we could see what was actually happening. But all around me, everybody was still working. Everybody was still working. Now, I was young and and brave the back then. I was like, I wasn't going to put up with it. I walked, I just slipped out the back door. But then fast forward, when 9-11 happened, um, you know, they didn't evacuate the the nearby towers after the first plane hit. And that's why, because even when there's a terrorist attack, you keep working. 
So that's why it had such an impact on me when I watched that happening. And, and it was like, by the grace of God, there go I, if I had been working in that tower on that day, I would have been dead because the company did not care. And there's, you know, it wasn't just that aspect of it, but that culture that uh, New York finance culture and a lot of corporate corporations where it's all that's important is working and people aren't as important. So that had a huge impact on me. Right. It's like, a, a it's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with as well, like valuing yourself by your output. And if I'm not, you know, if I'm not working, then I'm not worth anything. If I'm not putting something out, then it's, you know, there's no value in, in resting and stopping, especially when something as crazy as like a plane hitting a building. That's right. That's right. There was a bombing next door and they were still working. Like I saw that happen. Now, when 9-11 happened, I was not at the World Trade Center. My kid, I was just had my second child. And in fact, I had already walked away from my job. But I had just before that, had st- the month before, so it ha- in September and August, I had started interviewing, thinking about going back to work. I had fantasies of putting back on pantyhose, which we used to wear in those <laughs> days, um, and and go- going back to work, you know, and trading my spit up sh- sweatshirts for uh, Ann Taylor suits again. And when 9 11 happened, I was like, no, you're not. No, you are not. This is not what you're doing. And there's nothing like a crisis that lifts a veil over what's not working in your life. And the pandemic has been a very similar time for many people, which is why millions of people walked away from their jobs. And many more have, uh, many of them actually started Etsy shops. The Etsy sellers grew from about, I think, I think it was like three and a half million to 5 million. So there's a lot of people who are asking themselves those same questions that I was asking myself then, like, what, what is the meaning and purpose of my life? And is what I'm doing the, the, my purpose? Right. So what happened after 9-11? How did you kind of, you have this big awakening and then I think for a lot of people, it's very easy to like kind of have this big traumatic thing happen and then go back to life as usual. And that's not what you did. So talk to me about that. Yeah, I would love to say, and then I started painting and everything was rainbows <laughs> and daisies. But the truth is, is even though I, I knew in my, in my, on a soul level, I was not going back to that I still didn't believe I could make a living as an artist. So what I did at first was I taught Pilates at, you know, New York Sports Club, which is a chain of gyms here. And they had a vested interest in teaching their trainers how to sell, how to upsell clients on personal training packages. So when I was given the sales training, that's when I had my aha moment. I was like, oh, so I can use these skills to sell my art. And if I'm going to put all this time into selling, I'm not going to do it to sell somebody into a Pilates coaching session. I'm going to use it to sell my portraits and my artwork. So that's when I dug in really deep and I was so determined not to go back to work. That was such a motivation for me. I really was determined to make a real business out of it. So had you still been painting this whole time kind of like as a hobby? Yes. I hate the word hobby, but yes. yes Why do you hate the yes, word I hobby? Had. 
I don't know. It's like I I I was I was doing it. I just hadn't really monetized it. Um, I had made some sales, but I hadn't got. I didn't go all in. Like I had started to sell it, but not to the level that I started once I had that awakening of like how to actually start marketing and that I could be a student of marketing and sales. Did the way that you approach your painting change once you started selling it? Because, you know, you said you just said you hate the word hobby. I'll be honest. I kind of miss sewing as my hobby a little bit, you know, because mm -hmm. I don't do it as a hobby anymore. It's my job. It's what I do all day. And it's very rare that I'll get to spend a full day actually sewing something. And there is a part of me that misses, you know, those times when I would come home from school and just sit at my sewing machine and, you know, work on something beautiful until one, two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So I would call it more like a jobby than a hobby. Okay. What do you mean by that? Um, so I was making money for selling art and I even did this in college. So I was on financial aid in college. And at a certain point I realized that, um, I could use my work study money towards getting paid to design advertising posters for the school. So, um, I did put a value on my time and creating art even back then. So that's why I, I do a little cringe with hobby because hobbies is, is something I don't put quite as a value on it. And I always did put place a value on my creation, creating art that I knew that this was something that people would pay for. I hear that. That's an interesting kind of distinction. I don't think that I had the a similar type of um, feeling towards what I was doing. It was really just something to, to me, the value was not monetary. It was, this is something that I love doing and I get great clothes out of it. So it's, it's a little bit yeah. of a different way of looking at something. Yeah. I mean, so, I was never just painting to hang stuff on my walls. Let's put it that way. I hear that. I hear that. That's a, that's a totally different approach. Yeah. I, I definitely hear that. So once you realized that you could use these newly found selling skills to start selling your art, what did you do? What happens from there? Okay, so I was very strategic. Nothing's an accident. Um, I moved the portrait of my son into our foyer. So when he had playdates, uh, he he never forgot to show his friends. I didn't put him up to this, by the way. But, you know, little kids, he was very proud of the painting of himself in a Batman costume. You know, he was Batman. So he wanted to show his friends. And then likewise, when the moms would come to pick up their children, uh, nobody would forget to say, hey, look at the painting that uh, Seth's mom did. So there was that. And I used a lot of word of mouth techniques, which I do talk about in the book Artpreneur. So once I got a commission, I would deliver it at school pickup time in the school parking lot where all the other moms were seeing what I was doing. And I, I was always introducing it into conversation. So you know, oh, you want to see my art? It was never, here's my business card. It was like I had the little grandma brag book that I would whip out and, and show people paintings. I love that. Yeah, that's the self-promotion is one of the most effective types that there are. Guerrilla marketing. And you, exactly. And you mentioned this book, Entrepreneur, which is uh, which is your book that you've written about this whole process. Um, talk to me about why you chose to to write the book to begin with. Yeah. So 
just like 9-11 happened, there was an awakening in 2020, I decided I wanted to write a book. It took me that whole year to figure out what shape that book would take. But by the end of the year, I was very clear that I wanted to put all my selling knowledge into a book format. I talk about all these things on the podcast and I have a, a coaching program, but I really wanted to create a book out of it. So that was my motivation for writing the book and getting it traditionally published. So talk to me about that process about kind of distilling yourself into words into in into a page because this is what really fascinates me about how you pull together a project like this yes so um Rifki, do you have children i do okay so remember before you had kids and people told you having a baby is hard <laughs> yes okay and it wasn't until you had that first baby that you were like <sighs> I get what you're saying now. That's yes. what writing a book is like. I can tell you it's hard, but it's like being pregnant with an elephant. And an elephant is pregnant for almost two years. So so you don't recommend it is what you're saying. I'm not saying that. It's kind of like exercise. I'm very happy now that I've written a book. You know, this is great. I wrote a book. Uh, but the process is very hard. I mean, there's that very difficult elephant pregnancy. Then you have to give birth to an elephant. And now I have a baby elephant that I have to raise. So, <laughs> so let, let's talk about your baby elephant, because one of the you, you cover a lot of different topics in this book, and it's mainly about making a, a sustainable living from creativity. But there are also a lot of different parts of it that I think apply to like any aspect uh, of our lives. And one of the things that you talk about is the belief triad. T talk me through that. Tell me tell me what that's all about. Okay. So yes, this is, this is a business book, but you cannot be a good business person if you don't have a strong mindset. If you have a starving artist mindset, you will sabotage yourself. So it's really a personal development in disguise as a business book for artists. So one of the things that I talk about is the belief triad. Now, the belief triad, it's three parts. The first two parts you've heard of like so many times, believe in yourself believe in your, you know, your product, your, whether you're a fashion designer or, or you are an artist like me, or you do something else. We've all heard that. But what people don't talk about is belief in your customer, belief in your audience. And that is where we sabotage ourselves the most. So my favorite way of explaining this is I don't know what, what, what you design, but let's just, let's pretend it's a custom wedding dress and you've worked it out and you think you should charge $10,000 for it. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, she won't want to pay that. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, they, they won't pay for that for my art or I'm just starting out. So I shouldn't charge that. Or I can't sell now because it's a pandemic. There's a social justice movement going on. There's a recession looming. There's a tsunami in Indonesia. So there's all kinds of brain chatter that happens. And that's where we self-sabotage because we're not believing in our customer. Is it about believing in your customer or really believing in yourself? No, it's believing in them. It's believing in them and loving them because... What happens is we always make everything about us when somebody is making a purchasing decision. So let's just say it's a, a $10,000 couture gown. I, I don't know what you- what you're That's okay. That's a good example. We'll use it. Okay. okay. So let's just say it's that. They're not deciding whether 
Rifki Itzkowitz is worth investing $10,000 on. They're trying to decide if they, if I'm going to buy a gown, I'm trying to decide if I, Miriam Shulman, is worth investing $10,000 in. And if you don't believe in my ability to pay for it, then how can I believe in it? Right. See, it's interesting because from the artist's perspective, I can definitely relate to feeling like they wouldn't want to buy, they wouldn't want to spend this much from me. They would buy this, they would spend this much from somebody else if they were getting it, you know, from, uh, you know, Dior, they would gladly pay $20,000 for it or whatever it was. But what's but going on it, in the customer's mind is she's trying to evaluate if she is worth spending $10,000 on. Right. That's an interesting way to look at it. That's what's going through her mind. She is worried about making a mistake. She is worried about being foolish. We're so caught up in ourselves and whether we're better than Dior, if we're good enough, if, you know, how long we've been experienced, how many of these gowns we've already sold. We're so caught up in ourselves. We forget what our customer is thinking about. So that's where this belief in other people come in. Right. And then what's the third part of this triad? Yeah, that's the third part. So that it's you, your product, and your customer. Right. So talk to me about the difference between believing in yourself versus believing in your product. Because in a lot of ways, I identify as my product. <laughs> you know, in a, in a lot of ways, I, I don't really separate the two. Yeah. So believing in yourself, um, maybe the, the difference is, is, is subtle, but if you create, um, a gown, you believe in the gown as a beautiful gown, believing in yourself is perhaps your ability as a salesperson, whether people want to buy from you. So it is two separate things. As artists, we do tend to wrap those two things up. So sometimes it's hard to tease those things apart, Yeah, but they are I, different. I can relate to that. I, I can definitely relate to that. So I, I want to backtrack in your own story for a moment. When you are in the carpool pick, pickup lane and you're, you know, dropping off these paint, you know, commissions and and all of that, what kind of beliefs were going through your head at the time? Were you always someone who just, you know, had those three beliefs kind of cemented or did that take time to develop? You know, it goes in waves, but I believed in myself. I believed in my product and I did believe that if other people saw it, they would want it too. So that was a belief in the customer. And so just, you know, I could have been in that carpool pickup lane and I took the time to park my car in front of the playground that, you know, take that extra time. And that's where I would meet them. Like, oh, you know, oh, can I pick it up from your house? Oh, no, no, no. I, I don't have time. You know, meet me here at, at three o'clock and I'll, I'll just put it, we can put put it directly in your, in your car. So yeah, there, but, but it does come in waves. There's some things that once you develop your belief and you get that muscle really strong, it's, you don't have to work so hard. It's kind of like lifting weights at the gym. Like there's certain things that you're, you get good at, you can keep doing it. But then when you go into a new place, like writing the book, Oh, it was like, <laughs> oh, this is, this was like jumping off the high dive all over again. So you know, when I, when I first, you know, I, I believed that I would get a book deal. I, you know, I believed I would get an agent. I believed I would get a book deal. And then we signed the contract and they said, come back to me in six months. And I said to myself, this was a big mistake. <laughs> so how did you work through that? Therapy supplements, 
coach. <laughs> so it was, it was definitely a process. I definitely relied um, on, on other people to help me with coach, coach through my own mindset. So there was a lot of drama that went on, but I, I did persevere. One of the best pieces of advice that I got when I was writing was I said to somebody on my podcast. So I have a podcast to the inspiration place. I said, um, I understand the idea of, uh, can I say shitty? Yeah, sure. Okay. I understand the idea of a shitty first draft. Uh, but I, you know, I'm still struggling and it was Dr. Eric Maisel. He's a creativity coach. And he said to me, yeah, what you don't understand is you don't, it's not just about being willing to write a shitty first draft. You have to be willing to write a shitty first book. And oh, ouch. That hurts. No, but that is what we need to do. I I was on a podcast interview yesterday, uh, a, a business podcast where she says, yeah, but I'm just not talented. I said, okay, The wh what the difference is, and I didn't go quite into this detail because I'm not about shaming and blaming people who invite me onto their podcast. Good, but what's good going, strategy. <laughs> yeah, but, what, but what's going on in that person's mind and what goes on in a lot of people's mind who say, I'm not good enough, I'm not talented enough, is they use talent as kind of an excuse to let themselves off the hook because what it really is going on is they don't want to fail and they're not willing to be a bad artist first to do a bad painting before they can get to a good painting to be a bad tennis player before they get to be a good tennis player to be a bad coach until they're a good coach to be a bad whatever it is dressmaker um something 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 until they get good at it right it's that kind of experimental stage when you're just you're just not going to be as good is I think what really separates the boys from the men, as they say, you know, that's yeah, what really willing separates. to fail. And then even once you get good, not everything you do is going to be a masterpiece. I, and so I'm from the art world. So most of my examples come from that. But like even Monet. He destroyed a lot of his artwork at the end of his life. He, you know, what you see in the museum is the are the masterpieces. It's not everything he ever created. Right. And Van right. Gogh, they know he painted over canvases. It wasn't to save money. He had a lot of money coming from his brother Theo. He just had some ones that didn't come out so good. Even, I mean, Van Gogh also had other issues, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> not someone I would generally look to for like positive life. Um you know, how, how to set up your life. But yeah, I, I hear the point as well. The, so this idea of, of, you know, like taking your creativity and then being willing to fail and working through it, and then also being able to relate that to a customer so that you can turn it into a sustainable business. It's a, there's a lot of different aspects of this. And I think that what also what some people forget is that running a business is very different from being a creative. They're very different skill sets. And I'm curious what your learning curve was like when it came to developing the business side of actually selling your art versus developing your art, you know, to actually sell your paintings. Yeah, those are those are great questions. So there, there's both. You need to develop your skill set as uh, in your craft of whatever business it is that you are. The artists have to become better artists. Fashion designers have to become better at that. But there's also the where the skills of marketing. So as I mentioned in the beginning, mostly what I was using was guerrilla marketing, you know, hand to hand combat, um, word of mouth. 
And it was 10 years in when I started um, teaching online art classes where I had to learn a whole new skill set. So somebody had approached me on Etsy and said, do you teach classes online? And I had never heard of that then. I mean, now it sounds like, what are you, what are you talking about? But online are like dog years. So 10 years ago, we did, there was online classes, but not everybody knew about it. So as I had to learn and I looked around and what I saw other people doing who taught online art classes where they posted a few times on Instagram and that's what I saw. So that's what I thought I needed to do. And that didn't work out so well. So, um, yeah, I had like 10 signups at $35 each. It was, it was 10 signups for your first class is not bad, but I had two other teachers to split it with. Yeah, that's not great. And it was $35 each. So I lost money on the first one. And then I learned, oh, I need to build an email list. Oh, I, I need some smart, different kind of marketing strategies here. But what was a beautiful thing is once I learned the email marketing strategies and all those, those strategies I was learning to sell online art classes, I used those same strategies also to sell my art. So that was definitely a pivot point for me. And in what way did that change how you were selling your art? Well, I built mostly building the email list and staying in touch. And you asked me the question, how is building my business different than my art? So in the beginning, it felt different. Now it doesn't feel different because I put so much creativity into everything I do. And I infuse everything I do with so much of my own style and personality that it doesn't feel like a disconnect. It just feels like all part of the same thing. So marketing is an art, um, podcasting is an art, writing a book is an art. All these things are part of my art. I'm so glad you brought this up because marketing as an art is definitely something that I had to learn as well when it came to, you know, selling my designs. And it definitely, and I won't, I wouldn't say that I'm fully there yet at all on any level, but it definitely did take me a little bit of time to appreciate the creativity that goes into a marketing campaign that goes into a photo shoot and then kind of using those same parts of my brain that I would when I'm designing something and how to sell that piece. And then it, it made it all feel a little bit less like homework, yes. which, which, which certainly helps to get a job done in general. Yeah. And then any parts that do feel tedious that are not using your creativity that don't require thought work. That's the pieces you need to get help with and outsource. Yes. If you find I, yourself doing repetitive. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm no, I was, you, I'm, I happen to be married to a wonderful accountant. So that's very helpful when it comes to those kinds oh, of okay. tedious and repetitive um, and repetitive things. But yeah, th those are the types of jobs that have to be hired out because they will uh, crush your soul. That's right. And, and it's a lie when we say, oh, if I only had more hours in the day, because you don't have more energy. So if we if we were to wave a magic wand and give you four extra hours, I mean, your batteries are drained. So one of the things that you mentioned in, um, you know, in the book is that you have this whole, you talk about women's underwear. And I, and I feel like we should, we should go there because I'm oh, interested definitely. to, we, we have to go there. So uh, why, why are you talking about underwear, Miriam? Okay. Thank you for asking me that. So um, I, I read, uh, I have to give a little credit to, I read a book called the No BS Pricing Strategy. And they also talked about underwear, but it was written by a man. And I read it, I was like, oh, he just doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. So it was like, he talks about why does somebody pay 
$14.97 for a 10 pack of Hanes, but they'll pay whatever, $30, $100 for uh, a different brand. So there's a couple of things going on there. And what I did was I decided to use underwear, women's underwear in particular, as my analogy throughout the chapter, which is think like an abundant artist. And I have 14 lessons of how to think like an abundant artist. So yeah, you can, you can get a pack of Hanes for $14.97. You can get Victoria Secrets, which is, I don't know what it is, five for $30, but maybe you don't like their advertising because they are not inclusive. So now you're looking at a different brand or maybe you like some brand because like you said, it's Dior, it's Dolce Gabbana. So you want that cachet. Now you're going to spend more money, but maybe you don't like their antics either. Cause you know, they have, they do some things which are non-ethical. So there's a, lots of things that go on to purchasing decisions. And a lot of the point is that many artists have this belief that cheaper is easier to sell. And when you look at all the different prices for underwear and why we buy them, you see that that is not true. Because if that was true, everybody would be buying underwear for $1.49. Yeah. I hear it. Why do you think, why is it not always easier to sell cheaper? Okay. So let's take the example of a Rolex watch. And if I were to say to you, I have a Rolex watch and it's $47. That's fake. Right. So if you underprice your art, people are going to wonder what's wrong with it. And with a Rolex watch, even if I were to try to sell it on eBay for $400, you would assume it's a fake too, right? If I was buying it on eBay, I would assume it's a fake. Yeah. But even someplace else, let's say you go to a jeweler, a used jeweler. Right. So like the, in, when I was doing research for this book, um, I went to a used jeweler and the Rolex watches were priced higher than they were for, for, for their, because they were doing it as vintage. They were actually priced higher than the new models. So, and that is because they understood that it would be easier to sell a, a full price or a higher priced watch than it would to sell one at a discount. Interesting. Do you think that that's true for all products though? Yeah, well, for certain products, customers are looking for what's known as reassuringly expensive. Let's talk about babysitters. If you were going to go to a babysitting agency, you you and if they were to say to you, um, well, I have this one babysitter, she's $20 an hour. I have another one who's $7. Right. You're not going to hire the cheapest babysitter. Or if you have a vet and your your um your vet tells you that your dog needs surgery, it's going to cost whatever, $2,400. You're not going to go shopping around for a cheaper vet. So there are certain things in our life where we need the price to be what we think it's going to be. And especially in a luxury market like fashion mm -hmm. and art, sometimes the higher price tag actually makes it aspirational and people want it more if it's more expensive. So I like hear that. But I also think that a, a big caveat to that is that you can't put lipstick on a pig. It ha The product itself has to be worthy of it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But one of the easiest way to um, convey value is with a higher price tag. 
Right. So that instantly conveys a higher value. Just like I said, you didn't ask me a single question, like with the babysitting. Well, wait a minute. What, what about that $7 babysitter? Right. You know? is, she, is she really nice? Right. Yeah. You know. Right. It's no, you're, it's true. It's funny. Cause I actually will, uh, fair, not, that's funny. Not so much anymore. Um, but the the clothing that I sell, there is you can be naked for you can be not naked for less money is is the line that I'll usually use. Um, you know, my line is definitely a, a higher end line, and my product stands up to that in so many ways to the point where my factory is kind of like you know that you're the cheapest one of all of the people that we produce for, and I'm like yeah I know, but that you know this is the price point that I'm comfortable at, and the the when it comes to price and especially in something like clothing where. Yeah, you can be not naked at H&M, at Zara, at whatever. You know, you can be not naked for $10 if you really want it to be. Um, but it also boils down to, I think, what are the ways that you're thinking about your life as a whole? You know, if you're thinking about yourself as the type of person who dresses well and puts themselves together, you know, in a respectful kind of way and who, you know, is professional and who generally has their life together, you're not going to be walking around in a $10 Hanes t-shirt. You're going to, you know, you're going to dress accordingly based on that. And that will kind of dictate all of your other purchasing decisions. And really now when it comes to talking about price, I used to like kind of, I don't know, like justify feels like the wrong word, but I, I used to, I, you know, people would start, oh, your, your clothes are so expensive. This is not right. And I would like start listing all of the ways that my clothes were amazing. And they are, they're amazing. But I stopped doing that to just say it's a luxury product with a luxury experience. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. You know, like. Um, okay. And now here's where I want you to understand. We talked about earlier what the difference is between loving your buyer and understanding what's going through their mind. So when they say it's too expensive, they may not actually be thinking that the, this is too expensive. They might be thinking couple of different things. And this is what I go through in Artpreneur. I have the overcoming objections chart. And it's not about getting a yes at any cost. It's about really understanding what's going through their mind when they say something like that and what they may actually be thinking. So what you said earlier was so important. You said um, that you um, are loving yourself in a certain way and you're living a certain lifestyle so it's helping your customers see themselves in that way. And that's what believing in your buyer really looks like. So you love them and believe in them more than they do. They may think that they're not worth spending that money on because they're not, you know, whatever. They don't have that lifestyle. They don't deserve that lifestyle, but you believe that they do. Right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. I, ha I haven't thought about it in that way, but yeah, that's a very interesting that's a different angle to take on it. For me, as you know, especially you know that I I um I talk a lot about body positivity and and feeling good in your skin. That came from like honestly more of a like a moral place of like I just don't want people to feel bad in my clothes. I want them to wear them and feel happy and I think the huge part of that is how you feel in your skin. And that and I know that that messaging is a big reason uh, you know, why people buy from me because they've told me that. And I think that when we focus on making our customers feel good about themselves, especially when you think about like the fashion and beauty space for so long, it's always just been about like, your life is terrible, but this will make it better. And I don't think that that's, a, nobody wants to feel that way. And when it's, you're great. And also this is, and fits into that greatness is it's, it's just a, a much more positive way to be approaching life in general. And I think that it just helps people see themselves in a totally new way.
Exactly. So it's not when they say it's too expensive, it's not about you telling them why this is worth X amount of dollars, because if they don't see themselves as valuable, all that stuff is going to just make push them even further away because they don't think they're worth it. So if you're leaning into all the pleasure that what you have to offer is going to give them. That is what makes the difference because people will pay more for pleasure. And the analogy that I like to use that I talk about in Artpreneur, so many business people, Rifki, talk about focus on the pain. I was like, yeah, but I don't, I don't get it. It's art. Like, what's the pain? They'll say a blank wall. I'm like, no, a mirror can solve that problem. And when you see people promoting movies like Harry Potter, what's the problem? Boredom? They're not going to say it solves boredom. I'm not going to say that. So it's all about what the pleasure people give and people pay way more for pleasure than they do to solve a problem because toilet paper solves a problem. Right. Right. I think that when it comes to this whole topic, particularly when it comes around pricing art, it's there's a lot of mental blocks that artists themselves or creatives need to get over to get themselves to a point where, like you said, where they have those core beliefs. What do you think are, how do we, how do we get there? You know, I think that this applies also really to anyone who's having, um, who, who's not feeling great about themselves, but what do you think are some steps that we can take to believe in ourselves, believe in our product, believe in our customer, but also just believe in ourselves as you know, architects of our own lives? Okay. I love that question. So, one of the things, and this is especially true of women and people of marginalized groups, that we're taught not to take up space. And you talk about this, I know, a lot because of the clothing, but here's the message that we're get, being given is that we aren't supposed to take up space with our voice. We're not supposed to take up space with our businesses. We're not supposed to claim power. We're not supposed to desire money, that it's wrong for us to have these, these desires. So we are just not taking up space. I was with my daughter recently helping her shop and there was like a like an ottoman next to the, the fitting room. And I had my coat there and the woman was sitting there and I said, oh, I can move my coat. She's like, oh, I'm taking up too much space. I was like, first of all, you're not. And second of all, you should take up as much space as you want to. So how do, how do you think we get there? A lot of it is awareness. So it's kind of like, you know, an alcoholic. The first step is like, you just have to be aware that there's this problem. We're constantly being hammered with images to be thinner, but it's not just about being thinner. When they're telling us to be smaller, they're telling us to take up less space. So you have to own that. A lot of it is listening to your own thinking. So if you thinking a thought, so many of us, we think so many thoughts a day and we, we take them in as facts. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's an interesting one. You know, thinking about how, um, uh, a friend of mine who's a therapist was like, you, you can feel whatever you want. You can think whatever you want, but thoughts are not facts. They're not just because you think it doesn't make it true. And exactly. That should be a bumper sticker on every car. And I'm going to say in America, but really everywhere. It should be a right in the world. Everyone needs to see it. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. It has been so wonderful having this opportunity to kind of go through all of these topics with you. If somebody wants to learn more about you, Miriam, um, and get the book, where can they go? 
Okay. So if you like what you heard today, come find me on the Inspiration Place podcast, wherever you are listening here, you will find my podcast. And if you want a taste of the book, I'm giving away chapter one, absolutely free. It's choose to believe. Just go to shulmanart.com forward slash believe. And Shulman is spelled like school. So S-C-H- U-L-M-A-N-A-R-T. And I will send you chapter one. Fantastic. And I'm going to put all of those links in the show notes so that they're easy for anyone to find. Uh, Last thing I want to ask you, Miriam, this is something I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is, what does it mean to you to make an impact? Ooh, I love this question. So for me, it's always been about legacy. So leaving a, a legacy. So I do that with my art, I know that when I'm creating a portrait, I'm creating a legacy for the family of whoever I'm painting. It goes into their family. I'm creating a bit of immortality for myself. And that's what I'm doing with sharing everything I know on the podcast and why I put so much of what I know into this book is my impact in the world is leaving this legacy behind. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Miriam. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Miriam, her links are in the show notes. On the last episode, I spoke with Jody Claristenfeld. She shares her story of preterm birth and how that led to Flourish, an organization supporting NICU families. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 19 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Riff Gitzwitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.